Today's episode of Wings for Breakfast is brought to you by Remarkably Remote, a new daily microcast from GoToMeeting, all about making work from home work for you. With indispensable intel on how to stay sane, motivated, and productive at home, we're here to help you in this brave new remote working world. Add to your flash briefing on Alexa or subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. of Wings for Breakfast, our twice-weekly Red Wings podcast here on The Athletic. I am Max Boltman. With me, as always, is Prashant Iyer. Uh, and we've got a pretty loaded episode for everybody today. Um, Prashant, how you doing? Doing pretty well, Max. I uh, can't complain. It's a nice Wednesday morning over here in North Carolina, so I'll take that. Yeah, it's pretty nice here in Detroit, too, of course. Uh, no one's going outside, so it, it feels uh, it feels like a little bit of one of those, like, uh, you know how like people will like sit in their living room and just put like a cruise or like the ocean on TV? It's kind of how I feel right now. Yeah, I'm kind of enjoying the, the sun coming through the window right now on the back of my neck, and it's making me feel like I'm outside, but I'm, you know, sitting right inside on my couch here. Yeah, I may, uh, I may need to like open up the grill or something out, out back tonight just to, to be outside my house for... 14 minutes yeah good workout you just open the lid close the lid open it and do that a few thousand times in the next hour that'll get you some exercise too i think that counts yeah that counts i mean i was told that hanging curtains counted because that was my morning yesterday so there you go all right well we can dive right into this um i put an article out just a couple hours ago i'm not sure if you've had time to, to browse it yet but uh basically polling scott wheeler from the athletic one of our prospect uh, analysts craig button tsn's director of scouting also former nhl gm obviously uh, and then yoke nevelainen from dauber prospects and will scouch of scouching uh asking them for their closest nhl comparable uh for some of the red wings top prospects we got 10 prospects total three opinions on each prospect or three comparables and i know that you came prepared uh, with your own counter comparables for some of these guys. So I kind of wanted to run through here and just analyze some of the comparisons and then hear your uh, your counters to all of them if you're up for it today. Yeah, let's do it, Max. All right. So the first one uh, was Mort Sider, and, and Craig Button came, uh, came with one of the ones that I've mentioned on the show before that now I'm wondering if maybe subconsciously was planted in my head or something. Someone commented on the story that um, – Button actually made that same Brandon Carlo comparison uh, on draft day, which I don't remember. Um, obviously, I wouldn't have been watching the draft broadcast, but I kind of wonder if if somehow that worked its way into my subconscious because I brought that up after the Ribbons played the Bruins about a month ago. So I like that comparison, and I think all of the ones that were were, uh, were given for Cider were pretty promising. You, you had from Scott, uh, Alex Petrangelo without the goals. From Button, you had Brandon Carlo, and from uh, Yoke, you had uh, Aaron Ekblad, who was a former number one overall pick, and Jeff Petrie. I would lean more to the Ekblad side of that just because of the physicality, um, but I think somewhere on that spectrum, Brandon Carlo, Ekblad, Petrangelo, there is more at Sider's game. So I, I really liked the range of, of names in that one. Yeah, I thought those names provided were all really, really good. I think in particular for Red Wings fans, you're obviously hoping he becomes Alex Petrangelo with the goals. But that being said, uh, even having uh, 85% of Aaron Ekblad or, or getting reasonably close to Jeff Petrie, I mean, these are guys that eat up minutes. They play top-pairing minutes for their teams, uh, aside from Brandon Carlo, although he's top four. Uh, I think that's those are all great comparisons. Um, at least from my standpoint, thinking about uh, cider a little bit more and trying to, to piece together his game without using any of the comparisons provided by, um, the, the guys you mentioned. There's, a, there's kind of two names that jump out at me. One more from NHL history that kind of more aligns with his physicality and the other that's, uh, aligns a little bit more with cider's hockey IQ and his ability to manage the game. And so the one that kind of aligns more with the physicality, the size and that kind of nastier piece to his game is, is Darian Hatcher. Uh, who was a big defenseman for the Dallas Stars and then briefly for the Detroit Red Wings. Um, but he's a Michigan native, uh, big defenseman, was a number one defenseman for the Stars on a lot of their teams in the late 90s, early 2000s. 
Uh, really tough guy to play against. He would use his size, his reach to really control the game, control the space. He could chip in offensively, although he wasn't a prolific offensive player by any means. But more than anything, you just did not want to go uh, into the open ice areas around Hatcher, and you didn't really want to uh, go into the corners and have to work against him at his size. He was a big guy, six foot five, two hundred and forty five pounds. I certainly think he's more physical than than Cider ever was uh, or will be. But that being said, I think he he's kind of a nice comp from that physicality aspect. You know, another one that Red Wings fans will kind of think about is Vladimir Konstantinov, who also played with that kind of nastiness and edge. Although Konstantinov was only five foot eleven, he just played a lot bigger than he actually was. Um, and then the guy that's kind of in the NHL right now that speaks to Sider's intellect or overall hockey IQ is Chris Tanev of the Vancouver Canucks. I think Tanev for years really flew under the radar in Vancouver as a highly intelligent defenseman that skated well, uh, decent size, not a huge offensive player, but he really controlled both aspects of the game with his ability to break the puck out of the zone, make a good first pass, and he was so tough to play against one-on-one, and his IQ uh, and the way he positions himself really reminds me a little bit of Sider, so I think I'd be per- comfortable with basically Chris Tanev that hits a little bit more uh, as a as a reasonable player comp for more at Sider. Cider definitely hits a lot. I mean, it's the thing that I've been the most surprised about. I think it's one of the things the Red Wings have been happiest about in Moritz Cider's game is how much really organic physicality is part of his game at, at such a young age. And it's one of the things that, that to me, speaks to the Carlo comp because I, I think they, they combine that smooth skating, the physicality, the shutdown D play. Where I think the Carlo comp could end up being a little low, though, is that I really do think Moritz Cider has shown the ability to uh, play on the power play this year. And that's something that I was not expecting when the Red Wings drafted him. Uh, you know, he's, he's been strong on the power play when I've been able to see him with the exception of, as Scott noted, uh, he doesn't really, t- uh, take many shots. And I don't know that he's necessarily has the, the bomb shot that you are, are like, Hey, you know, you want this guy taking all these shots, the Colton Pareko mold kind of thing. Um, but you know, he, he's a great passer, smart player, walks the line well. So if he, manages to play an NHL power play, then I think he's going to score more than Carlo and more than Tanev uh, similarly. So um, it's interesting, though. I mean, I, some of these names that are getting tossed around, I think um, there was some idea that, you know, we'll get into this more as we go through the prospects that, um, you know, some of them were kind of letdowns. And I wondered if, if Carlo might have been one of the ones people were alluding to there. But to me, you know, Brandon Carlo plays huge minutes on the Boston Bruins, and I think if you are playing huge minutes on a cup contender, uh, that's a player that you should be more than happy to have any day of the week, and if they do get up into that like 30-point range, all the better. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I th- I think I don't think I would be let down by having Brandon Carlo. Now, obviously, uh, you-, you may be disappointed when you're saying, okay, at sixth overall, I ended up with Brandon Carlo, but that being said, I don't I don't know that you can always judge him back to his draft position. And simply, if you're getting a top four defenseman that can eat minutes, contribute offensively, and and potentially give you a little bit more scoring than Carlo does, that's a valuable defenseman that you can still win with if that player is your best defenseman. I think we've seen examples of that when the Pittsburgh Penguins didn't have Crystal Tang. They were still able to, uh, you know, win those types of games, win a Stanley Cup. Uh, having players that could do it, that were all similar level with that kind of skill set. So I think that's a great comp, um, you know, hoping, hoping that you do get maybe a little bit more offense. Uh, I think that's kind of why I also like the Darian Hatcher comparison because he also played you know, significant power play minutes for the Stars next to Sergei Zuboff, who was obviously the much more offensively talented defenseman for the Dallas Stars back in the late 90s. But Hatcher had a great shot, big rocket, um, you know, huge physical player, really tough to play against. I'm kind of hoping that you get a guy like that because for years, Hatcher was consistently on Norris ballots. He didn't win any um, because Nick Lidstrom won them all. Uh, but that being said, I think he was consistently in that realm. Yeah, and obviously if you, if you draft a guy who gets, you know, four or five seasons uh, where he's in the top 20 in Norris finishers, basically he's a number one defenseman. You're, you're more than happy with that. Yeah, I mean, you can't complain whatsoever. And Hatcher is also a nice comp in that sense because uh, Hatcher was uh, eighth overall in his draft class and so kind of right in the similar pedigree to, in terms of what you're expecting. Yeah. All right, so then I think the next one, Max, that you touched on was, was Joe Valeno. 
Um, I think I'll start this one off. And, and so for my comparison, again, trying not to use players that were noted by the, the guys you pulled, um, the guy that kind of struck me as most similar to Joe Valeno, and when I'm thinking about this, I'm looking for a player that can play both sides of the ice, maybe doesn't have a ton of offensive upside, although it has a little bit of that scoring touch, um, but probably going to play in your middle six areas, could play as high as a 2C, but probably is better suited as a 3C. I think putting all those pieces together, the guy that kind of jumped out to me was Tyler Bozak, who was uh, undrafted, but similar size to Valeno, six foot one, 200 pounds, plays both sides of the ice really, really well. And Toronto was asked to play a little bit above his head, sometimes first line, sometimes second line. Uh, but when he found his, uh, you know, role in St. Louis playing more on the third line as a center, I thought he did an excellent job, you know, really solidifying that third C role for the Blues. Helped him get to the Stanley Cup. He certainly has uh, some offensive potential. He has a couple of 49-point seasons, a career high of 55, uh, a career high of 23 goals. So I think those are maybe a little bit loftier than what I'm expecting Valeno to be able to chip in. But I think having a 40-point center that plays both sides of the ice quite well and, and can chip in from that third-line role, although optimistically can maybe play a little bit on the second line. I think Bozak fit pretty well for Valeno. Uh, Max, of the three names that you got, who did you think best suited uh, Joe Valeno's uh, potential? I thought it was a pretty good spectrum. I mean, I think on, on the high-scoring end, you had uh, Scott given the Philip Deneau comparison. I think Red Wings fans should be ecstatic uh, about just even hearing, you know, those guys in the same sentence. Deneau plays a great role for the Canadians, and, he, you know, he's he centers uh, a pretty dangerous line for them. I mean, he was on pace to have a 50-point season this year, had a 50-point season last year. He's still 26, and he was getting Selkie votes last year. So uh, if he's Philip Deneau, Red Wings fans should be over the moon. Um, Will Scouch, who, who did the North American prospects uh, as the third opinion with with Craig and and Scott um he threw out Adrian Kempe, and I think Red Wings fans would probably be a little disappointed uh, if ultimately Joe Valeno is Adrian Kempe. But even still, you know, you look at that, and, and Kempe is in that 30-point range very early in his career with a lot of room to still get better. Now, maybe one of the things about it is Kempe, uh, I think he plays on the left wing now, so that may be uh, one of the ways that I think that People could uh, could be bummed about that. And then Craig Button gave the Michael Backlund comparison, and that's an interesting one because Backlund uh, has, has had several seasons with, I guess, three the, the last three seasons he's gotten Selkie votes, including a couple top 10 finishes. He's consistently uh, kind of in that 30 to 50 point range, uh, depending on the year. Uh, and for a really good, you know, a Calgary team that's become pretty good in recent years. So I think if you're getting a, a second line center for a contender who is getting Selkie votes and scoring in the 40s, you're very happy. And so to me, um, the Valeno comps, maybe none really like super sexy other than maybe Deneau in terms of name, but really good players. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly good players there. I I will say I think the Backlund comp is a little bit optimistic just because, you know, Backlund uh, has honestly been part of Calgary's most, I guess, difficult line to play against. Um, and, and arguably is their kind of best overall, uh, two-way player, if you will, on, on the flame. So, you know, he's a, he's an outstanding, outstanding player. Obviously, I think that's more on the optimistic side of things, but either way, I mean, if you're getting a range where your floor is maybe Adrian Kempe, which again, I think, uh, the reason Wings fans are probably not as happy with that comp is one, Kempe is very early in his career. Two, he plays in Los Angeles where you're not getting a lot of press on him given that the Kings have been similarly bad. Um, and, and three, he just largely didn't have the pedigree associated uh, with him that Valeno does. I, I still don't think that's a bad floor to set for him. Um, but like I said, you're kind of hoping he can become closer to that Backland or even Tyler Bozak or, or even, you know, optimistically, really optimistically is Philip Deneau. Yeah. And one thing we should maybe go out of our way to say here is that I don't think any of these comps are predictions, right? So they're they're stylistic comps. And so what you're really looking for here is the picture of what he's going to be. And so what I get from this range of players, let's start with Sider. What I get from the Sider range is you have a top pairing defenseman, right? A physical top pairing defenseman who you're hoping can add offense as things go. From Valeno, I'm getting, you're getting a strong two-way center who can probably play uh, on your middle six and you're hoping for the upside that's going to elevate him into that territory uh, more like the back 
Oakland or even up into the Deneau range. But you're getting that strong two-way player. You're looking for profiles here more than you're looking for, this is what I can expect in terms of how many silky votes Joe Valeno is going to get. Is, is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's completely fair to say, and that's that's the best way to put it. Just because, again, you don't want to walk away from here saying, "All right, Joe Valeno is Michael Backlund." Like that's right. that's that's the wrong assessment. You should say Joe Valeno plays like Michael Backlund, exactly. but may or may not have the same skill to get the same results as Michael Backlund or something along those lines. So, an um, important distinction here as we're, we're making these comps, and that we're looking for players that just maybe resemble. Uh, what these wings prospects look like as opposed to these wings prospects will be these players. And by definition, any NHL comparable is aspirational, right? Like if you're comparing a prospect to an NHL player, it's because the prospect hasn't even made the NHL yet. So just definitionally, you cannot, it's not a fair expectation to say that if Joe Valeno doesn't become Michael Backlund or Philip Deneau, that he has botched his development. We're talking stylistic comps here. Yeah, I completely agree because again, we're, we're going to run through a list of 10 comps here. Uh, optimistically, you're not going to hit 10 out of 10 as right. all those guys even making the NHL. Yep. So I think it's still important to note that, uh, you know, the NHL comps are simply just how these players look and play. The next one that we did was Michael Rasmussen, and uh, this is a guy who I think is is incredibly hard to get an accurate comparison for, for a couple of reasons. Number one, there's not a lot of players his size uh, in the league. Number two, he has an interesting combination where he's an offensive threat in terms of he he has scored in the past, but a lot of it's been done at the net. Um, He's not a a, a super strong, I mean, he's strong, I guess, uh, super fluid skater, I guess would be the word I would use. Uh, He doesn't have like real high end uh, agility or speed or anything like that, but he he has produced historically. uh, And that's Michael Rasmussen, obviously. So, Scott Wheeler said Michael Hanzus. Uh, Craig Button said Tomas Holmstrom. Will Scouch said Brock Nelson. I don't know where I fall on that, and, and I just don't know that I really could could state one way or the other. Uh, I, I think certainly Button's onto something with the the net ability of a Holmstrom, but I also think you're looking for Rasmussen to be a shutdown center, um, and I'm not sure that that fits the comp perfectly. Um, you know, Scott gives Hanzus, and I think in terms of roles, I think that makes some sense. Uh, maybe, I mean, I think obviously you're pretty happy if Rasmussen gets to Brock, Brock Nelson's production level. So I don't know that any one of those flipped the switch for me in terms of like, like there's a comp that we'll get to in a minute here that when I heard, I was like, oh yeah, that's it. Um, I don't think there was one of those for Rasmussen for me. Yeah, I, I agree. Like the button comparison for Thomas Holmstrom, I think, uh, you know, Holmstrom makes sense just simply from the net front ability on the power play. And that's where, you know, Rasmussen was super effective. But the other thing that doesn't really get talked about Thomas Holmstrom's game is he had IQ off the charts. And that's why he was so good being able to play next to guys like Datsuk and Zetterberg. And even earlier in his career, being able to play on, on lines with guys like Igor Larionov. It's because he was such a smart player that he always knew where to be uh, to get the puck, and he had a lot of skill. It's just his skating was horrific. He was an absolutely awful skater, very, very choppy, um, but he was so, so smart. And I don't think that really describes Rasm- the rest of Rasmussen's game. I, I completely agree on the net front piece. Um, the Michael Hanses one is actually one that I briefly entertained because, as Scott put it, Hanses was kind of an unremarkable player in the sense that he didn't have skill that jumped off the chart to you, but he was a guy that was effective in front of the net, could skate well, but didn't really use his size super well. So I think that's a pretty effective comp. Another guy I kind of put in that territory, although again, stylistically, I don't know that he completely matches up with Rasmussen, is Michael, um, uh, sorry, not Michael, why did I say that? Uh, Martin Hansel. Uh, Martin Hansel, who again, Wings fans for years are familiar with him playing down in Arizona. He was a big center, six foot six, 230 pounds. Uh, you know, he was a little bit more defensive minded, I think, than Rasmussen. Uh, that being said, he didn't really use his size as effectively as he could have, um, in the offensive zone to score a lot. He never really had, uh, outstanding scoring seasons in the NHL, even though he did demonstrate some scoring upside in the WHL, like, like Rasmussen did. Um, you know, Hansel in his draft plus one year had basically about 1.2, 1.3 points per game. Um, in the WHL for Red Deer. So I think he's a guy that, that somewhat mimics the, the things that 
Rasmussen can do. I think Hansel was effective on the power play. I think he was a decent skater at his size. I think he, you know, was able to be somewhat effective from a positional standpoint, but just simply didn't utilize his size well enough in the offensive zone to, to impact the game at a high level at five on five. Yeah, and you know what? Going back, I, I may have undersold this. I didn't realize that Hanzus had the defensive uh, reputation that he did. So maybe that one, maybe that one pulls ahead for me in terms of the other three. But yeah, I, I think what, a lot of what you're saying about Hansel makes sense, and certainly he combines a lot of those those elements. So uh, Rasmussen's going to continue to be one of the hardest players to get a a grasp on for people until he has made it. You know, and I don't just mean in the NHL. I mean until he's established. Like I. Completely expect that people are going to be arguing about Michael Rasmussen until the year 2024, at which point we'll know one way or the other pretty definitively. Yeah, I completely agree because if you're asking me, like, for all of the guys just listed, I still think from a results standpoint, Rasmussen comes in short of all of those guys, but I think trying to actually get the style and, and, you know, down pat on him is so difficult and, and he is super raw at this point and that's why you, you're going to need to give him a little bit of time to really get a better handle on, on what he's truly going to be. And I think one reason it's difficult for people to, uh, to, to put Rasmussen kind of into the right context is because when he was in the NHL last year, he was at the wing. But the Red Wings are see him as and are developing him as a defensive center, right? So that is a tough mental uh, kind of hurdle, I think, to clear when, when you've only ever really seen somebody play uh, on the wing as a 19-year-old in the NHL, and now they're telling you, no, he's going to be a shutdown center, uh, that I think it can be hard to get from point A to point B there, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. And then the other thing to, to factor in is you didn't get to see a lot of Rasmussen this year because of injury right. issues. Uh, and so you go from seeing him in the NHL playing at a position that's not his position at a level that was probably too high for him at that point, uh, but was really his only option given the, the CHL-NHL agreement. You just didn't think the CHL was going to offer him that much. And so then you shift him down a level. He looks good in spurts, but you don't see a lot of them. And so now you're you're two years out from really seeing him and you're going, I still have no idea what Michael Rasmussen is. And I think that's a completely valid place to be. Um, that being said, I think next season is going to be a huge, huge development season for him. And it's really going to tell you which way he's going to go. Yeah. How about Jonathan Berggren? Yeah, Berggren's another guy, um, similar to Rasmussen. You haven't gotten to see as much as you, you really want to because of some injury issues. Berggren in particular has had two big injury issues. So I think that's really going to limit, um, you know, your ability to make an accurate assessment of him. From what I've been able to see in the scouting reports, I've been able to, to read, what you're really getting in Berggren is a guy who's got quick feet, you know, likes to play with the puck, sometimes has the tendency to hang onto the puck a little too long, um, but he's a really creative playmaker, sees passing lanes that a lot of people don't really see, um, but ultimately still needs to fill out his frame a little bit more, still needs to become a little bit more aware of when's the right time to give up the puck, uh, when's the right time to make that extra move, and he still needs to become a little bit more willing to go to the front of the net and play less on the perimeter. Um, if Stop me if you've heard this before, Red Wings fans, but that sounds a lot like Thomas Tatar to me, especially when Thomas Tatar broke into the NHL. Uh, he was a guy that, you know, always liked to play with the puck on his stick, was always looking to make creative moves, but you would just come away from, especially in his first couple of years, going, Thomas, if you just moved that puck after the first move instead of the second or third move, you would have been able to complete that pass. And so he was a guy that was ultimately very fun to watch, but very frustrating to watch, um, particularly in his early seasons because of that tendency. But he had great feet, liked to move, um, excellent edge work. Uh, there's a shootout goal of, t- of Tatar from a, a few years back where if you go watch it, you go, I have no idea how this guy didn't blow out his knee with that edge work right there. So he reminds me a lot of Jonathan Berggren in that sense. Um, that being said, I don't see Berggren having the same capacity to control the ice when he's on there. Thomas Tatar has quietly been one of the most effective players when you're evaluating players based on Corsi 4 and expected goals 4 percentage. Um, he's consistently in that 55 to 50, you know, 6% range um, as a player, and he's been an outstanding guy. He really leads that Montreal line with Philip Deneau. That line is one of the top lines in the NHL the last couple of years. So, you know, he's a guy that I, I really watch and see, but I don't think Bergeron has that capacity, but just stylistically there, I think he fits in. Max, of the three comps you got, who do you think best matches up with, with Jonathan Bergeron? 
Yeah, um, Berggren's one of the toughest ones for me. I mean, Scott said Nikita Gusev, uh, Craig Button said Andrew Mangiapan, uh, in Calgary, and then Yoke said, uh, like, at his best, you're looking at a Jaden Schwartz type in terms of the skill of an undersized playmaker who, who will compete a little bit. Uh, but then I think Yoke made the interesting point that, you know, because of the injuries, does the projection shift more in the direction of like a Robbie Fabry? That one I think is very interesting because I'm not sure that Bergeron has the same uh, level of kind of fight in him that that Fabry does. Like he's a real tenacious player. Now I haven't seen Bergeron uh, in person too much outside of development camps, and then basically the World Junior Summer Showcase, which was really his return to playing this summer after uh, missing the second half of last season. So I don't know that I would have gotten to see that side of his game. Um, but I, I think there's, you know, some interesting lessons kind of to pick out of there. And I think it was Button that made the point, uh, that as you go up, it gets tougher to have the puck so much that you have to kind of learn when to not have it, when to get into the right spots to get it back. And, and he made the point that Mangiapane, uh, learned those things and that Bergeron is smart enough to do the same. Uh, but what I think is interesting about that is that when I watch Bergeron, I think of him just wheeling around the offensive zone and just possessing the puck until he finds that perfect pass. It, it's a fair point that he's just not going to be able to do that, uh, consistently in the NHL because no one really can, unless your name is Patrick Kane, maybe Quinn Hughes, maybe Kale McCarr, right? So unless you're talking about a player of that caliber it's really hard to play that style and so there will be a transition presumably in Bergeron's game uh so I I think that to me you know it it, maybe if not uh the name that I think people want to hear that I think best describes the trajectory that Bergeron probably has to take and Mangiapane is still a good player for Calgary yeah I mean that yeah don't get me wrong Mangiapane is a great player and I think he's a guy that again you would be happy to have from Jonathan Bergeron at this point in time. So, you know, I think the point by Button is really well made that players, as you continue to go up levels, have to get used to playing away from the puck. And I think Bergeron's a guy who's always used to having the puck on his stick. And I think that's what honestly separates the really talented players uh, from those that ultimately flame out of the NHL. And I'll give a comp that, again, might remind uh, some people of Jonathan Bergen if you're looking for what a floor might be. Thomas Yurko. Uh, Yurko was an insanely talented player with the puck. I mean, when he was coming from the dra- coming up in the draft, there were YouTube videos of all these trick shots and, and different skill moves that he could do. When the guy had the puck on his stick, he was just – it was unbelievable to watch. I mean, the guy could literally do – Everything. Another guy uh, people might remember is Linus Omark, uh, also over in Sweden, who uh, is the one who created the flip shot, um, you know, shootout goal. And so those two guys in particular, outstanding with the puck on their stick, but didn't really do a lot to get it back and didn't really do a lot away from the puck. And ultimately, neither of those guys were very successful at the NHL level. So I really like the button statement that you have to find a way to play away from the puck. And that's why I think Bergeron is so difficult to evaluate because on the bigger ice in Sweden where you're able to play with it a little bit more on the perimeter because the D aren't going to chase you out there, how does that translate to the North American ice? And so I think that'll be really interesting to watch. What did you think of the Jared McIsaac ones that, that were given? I mean, there was they were, those were a little bit all over the board. I think Scott said Alec Martinez. Button said Ryan Lindgren, and then Will Scouch said uh, Ryan Pollock, and and you know Pollock obviously been huge for the New York Islanders. Uh, did you have any thoughts on those, or did you have a name that you you like better? Yeah, I mean, you know, the Alec Martinez one, I really really like. I think he's a great complimentary defenseman, so he's a guy that uh, makes a lot of sense. Not a huge scoring, um, you know, defenseman by any stretch. I think personally for me, the guy that makes a little bit more sense is another New York Islanders defenseman in Adam Pellich, who's again a solid two-way defenseman, eats a lot of minutes, uh, you know, plays about 21 minutes a night for the Islanders, but not really a big scoring defenseman. He scores maybe 20, 25 points a season for you, but plays a little bit physical, really strong defensively. I think that maybe lines up a little bit more with McIsaac, but I think either that or the Alec Martinez one makes a lot of sense. Uh, but another Red Wings defenseman who's also kind of up there um, in terms of having to get a good difficult or get, being a difficult one to scout is Anti Tuomisto. So, yeah. Max, of the uh, of the guys that you were provided as comps, who do you think 
uh, maybe best represents to Amista's game. I like the Pulak one. I, I thought I thought that fit to Amisto a little bit better than McIsaac, just because I think of McIsaac too as more of the um, like defensive first player. And so when Yoke uh, Nevalainen said Pulak, I, I pulled up some Pulak video and I was like, you know what? I can actually really see this a guy who's going to score primarily from his big big shot, uh, and then hopefully if if everything goes right for Tuamisto, um, the Red Wings are going to have him as, as a player who can, who they can play big minutes too. Yeah, I mean, honestly, Pulak was the first name that I thought of for, for Tua Misto. And then a couple other ones that really jumped to mind were uh, Nikita Zadorov out in Colorado, a big defenseman, can skate the puck up ice, also has an equally big shot. And then for Buffalo Sabres fans, Rasmus Ristolainen is another guy that makes a lot of sense. Maybe a little bit more offensively skilled than Tua Misto, uh, but again, a big mobile defenseman with some offensive upside, although a lot of people kind of knock Ristolainen's defensive game for sure. Yep. Yep. Uh, what about Albert Johansson? So Johansson, Johansson's a tough one to evaluate, but you know, like you've been talking about for a while, he's really coming on of late. Uh, I think for me, the difficult comparison was trying to sort out who's that smallish mobile skating defenseman. One guy that jumped out was, uh, Henry Joka Arju, who's now, um, in Buffalo from Chicago. I think Joka Arju is a similar size player to, to Johansson. Great skater, has the ability to rush the puck up the ice contributes offensively, high IQ defenseman. I think that's kind of best case scenario for Albert Johansson. Yeah, and Yoko Haru is a guy who's gotten a lot of pub, uh, obviously with the trade from, uh, was it Chicago to Buffalo? Uh, yep. So he, he's a guy who certainly I, I think I could see, you know, he was a late first round pick and, and uh, Johansson's been a little bit of a, to me at least, a riser in what he's done this season. I think the skating is what sets him apart. And what I struggle with is that like, He's he's a strong skater, but he hasn't really produced at crazy levels. He had a pretty productive year in the SHL, and, and Craig Button made the point that he's a guy that you're almost drafting him, which is this is not something you hear a ton about um, kind of like Swedish or, or even really any European players, and that could be a whole other conversation about just what uh, scouting buzzwords people use. But he made the point that, that he's, a com- he's a competitor. He's going to give you whatever it takes. And it made me think back to draft night and, and Hakan Andersen giving almost a heroic comp for – Johansson. I thought that was interesting. Hironik without the shot, I believe, was that was that comparison. So, Button says Siegenthaler. Uh, Yoke said Nate Schmidt. I, that was kind of an interesting one that I hadn't thought of. And then uh, Scott said Matt Grizelchik of, of Boston or Andy Green. I think any of those, the Red Wings should be pretty happy with at that point. At that point, you're talking about a player who's going to play uh, on, on probably one of your second or third pairs. But again, you're, you're picking late in the second round. I don't think you should be expecting uh, a top pair stud at that point. Uh, Siegenthaler, I thought, he's, he's taller than Johansson, but it did also remind me, uh, I believe the Red Wings are hoping that he grows an inch or two because I believe his dad and brothers are both uh, are both six three. Yeah, so <laughs> hopefully he does grow a little bit, and and I do like the girl check um, comparison uh, as well from Scott. I think it's a it's a good pick, but either way, I think you're just hoping to get a mobile defenseman that can move the puck up the ice and and is able to play well um, gap control wise. Uh, so now, Max, I, I think the next one we got to jump to is the one who's your you said uh, to me was your favorite player comp that you received, and mm-hmm. it was for Robert Master Simone. I love the Beauvillier comp. In, in the past, like, Scott said Zucker, and that's something I've thought of before, but I ultimately don't know if he's going to do uh, offensively as well as Zucker has. Beauvillier, though, I think does is a great comp in terms of the, the slipperiness of Master Simone's game, but also, like, the compete level, and um, that, to me, is one that stood out immediately. Will said Tomas Tatar, so that's our, our second Tomas Tatar mention of the day, and, and I, I think I get what he's going for there, too. Uh, but to me, when I heard Beauvillier, I was like, oh, yep, that's it. Yeah, I mean, Beauvillier, I thought, was probably the best comparison you could have for Master Simone. I think another guy that I was trying to, to fit into Master Simone, but is a guy who I think is substantially more skilled than Master Simone, is Jonathan Marcheseau. Again, another smaller winger, great shot, uh, decent skater, uh, can have a, a nice impact on the game. I think, obviously, that would be the best-case scenario you could possibly hope for with with Master Simone, but it, just that type of, that archetype of player, um, that kind of reminded me of, of Robert Master Simone. Let's take a quick break because I want to tell everybody about the Black Tux real quick. The Black Tux believes every groom deserves a better experience when it comes to finding formal wear, a suit or tuxedo, for their big day. Did you know the Black Tux was actually started by two guys who had one of the worst tuxedo fittings you could imagine? Turns out they aren't alone in this frustration. Just listen to these one-star reviews from competitor tux shops that shall not be named. 
Go elsewhere. This place is pretty terrible, unless you're dressing like your grandpa for Halloween. We felt weird buying a suit from somebody so unhappy. We were afraid his bad vibes might follow us to our wedding day, so we left. What I love about the Black Tux is they have an easy online ordering process that brings your suit or tuxedo straight to you. Just pick a style at theblacktux.com and request a free home try-on so you can feel the fit and quality before you commit. And if online isn't your style, the Black Tux has showrooms all over the country where you can find your fit and plan your look. From there, they'll ship your order two weeks before your wedding so you can check it one last time. Talk about commitment. Whether you're buying your outfit or looking to rent, you won't find a formal wear experience or designs like the ones you'll find at the Black Tux. If you want your wedding to be remembered for the right reasons, order your suit or tuxedo at theblacktux.com and enjoy 10% off with code WINGS. That's theblacktux.com, code WINGS, for 10% off your purchase. The Black Tux, formal wear for the moment. All right, uh, moving toward the end here then, let's get to Giovanni Smith. Man, Giovanni Smith's a tough one because he's a guy that was drafted in the second round. You were hoping he was going to be a huge impact player, struggled for a little bit with penalties uh, in the OHL, and then has kind of cleaned up his game to becoming an effective player. The guy that jumped out jumped out to me as a perfect comp here was Jordan Martinook in Carolina, who, just like Giovanni Smith, similar, he was a second-round pick, um, is able to chip in a little bit offensively, career highs of 15 goals, 25 points. He's a high-energy player, throws his body around a lot, really livens up that locker room, can play really up and down the lineup, doesn't really play much power play time, not really an effective net front player like we got a glimpse of with Giovanni Smith. But I think Smith can be that type of NHL player that Jordan Martinook is and just be really, really effective, utilize the speed on the forecheck, and be a difficult player to play against. What about you, Max? Yeah, Giovanni is an interesting one, and I I think you could kind of see it reflected in, in the answers here. So Scott said Chris Wagner. Uh, Button said, Brendan Lemieux type, but could be some loss in Krause if he can get more into that uh, shift in kind of mentality of his game. And then uh, Scouch said, Jordan Nolan. I, I think that kind of sums up to you, though, in, in broad strokes, the kind of player you're looking for in Giovanni Smith. He's he's an energy guy. He's a guy that you want in, in the bottom half of your lineup. And I ultimately think, you know, especially when you start hearing, like, he, if he shifts his game toward the loss in Krause mindset, the quote button gave was, here I am, try to take me out of my space because I'm going to take you out of your space. That, I think, is the quote that best sums up how size can best be utilized in the NHL. It doesn't have to be about the big booming hit, although Smith can certainly deliver that. But more than anything, it's about how it can shift where people are on the ice and the areas you can get to. If if that's what Giovanni Smith can be, the Red Wings should be over the moon. Yeah, I completely agree. I think if he gets to that level where he's able to have that kind of impact, you're really talking about an effective NHL player who's going to have a relatively lengthy career. And that's why I think maybe that Jordan Martineau type is exactly yeah. that player, except you're hoping for maybe a little bit more offensive upside. And that may come simply by virtue of getting power play time. Yeah. And, you know, certainly like, like Chris Wagner, if you're, if you're taking basically anyone off Boston's roster right now, you're pretty happy with it because anytime you're, you're getting a, a complete roster like that, I think that's one of the archetypes to build around other, you know, they have got a top heavy, uh, scoring system there with, with their top line, but that's a line that pretty much one through four, they can match up with you, right? Yeah. Completely yeah. agree. All right, so the last guy we got then is Elmer Soderblom, who I think from your pulse, your polling people, they this was the most difficult comparison for them to generate. So, what do you think of the Compton? Who would you take? Yeah, Scott said um, you know, he, he made the point that there's just so few players this size, um, and I think he said there's no one that played a single game in the NHL at forward last year at six foot seven. So. That tells you how rare this is. He kind of gave the Nick Bugstad comp, and I, I think that would be, and, and he made the point, like the odds he's going to breach that production ceiling um, are pretty low. But I think, you know, that's a mold for, for for how it can look. And Button said Brian Boyle, um, just because of, of kind of the trajectory and, and where he fits. So Elmer's got some hands, and that's kind of the, the point he was making. Um, and then Yoke said uh, Jordan Greenway. And I think all of this reflects just how how tough it can be for a guy at that size size can be valued uh but at some point it gets so big that it's like is it going to become an impediment right is it going to become an impediment to speed is it going to become an impediment to to other things you know so i don't know that any of these jumped off the page to me is there anyone that that you thought uh fit better yeah i mean i completely agree and i think one of the challenges with size in prospects is 
Uh, you and I have talked about this at length, but how do you separate a prospect's production that's simply due to the fact they're that much bigger than everybody else versus them being that much more skilled than everybody else? And I think this is one of the bigger challenges because in a lot of prospect analytics, we know that bigger players often make the NHL at a higher rate, but they're not necessarily any more successful than the other players that make the NHL. And I think a large part of that is because part of their production is related to the fact they are simply just bigger than everybody else. So you have to take that with a grain of salt when you're evaluating a guy like Soderblom. You know, none of the guys really jumped off the page for me. No active player really jumps off the page for me. So I had to reach back to a historical comp that, again, Red Wings fans from the early 2000s may remember this guy, but Eric Daze, who played for the Chicago Blackhawks, he was a six foot six winger, high offensive talent, Decent skater, didn't really use his uh, size for a physical purpose, didn't really, wasn't really an outstanding forechecker. Um, you know, he would always try to rely on skill, even though he sometimes had the size to be able to use, you know, the puck to, to maybe keep it away in that sense, as opposed to simply trying to go through people, which he often would try to do. But Daze was an ex- incredibly effective player for the Chicago Blackhawks, and, and he was a guy that was very difficult um, for the wings to stop, and he often would put a, a hurt on the wings in the late 90s, early 2000s. So uh, I think if you're hoping for best-case scenario with Soderblom, you're hoping he can be an effective offensive player like Daze was. Yeah, and, and one one thing that I I often feel bad about when I do a story like this uh, is because I'm I'm kind of ultimately putting the the panelists in a bad spot when you know Soderblom's still a long shot to make the NHL. So asking them to give a, a comp of a player who made the NHL is is mostly asking them to uh, to be overly generous. You know, like in a situation like Valeno or Cider, you're pretty confident those guys are in the NHL within a year or two. So it's it's not as hard to to figure out what role or what template or what style they're going to play when they're there. Um, but with a guy like uh, Soderblom, it, that's still a long shot. That's still so far away. It's just a, it's just a bigger ask to find that comparable. So I'm very much understanding that uh, I probably created the the issue there, and in uh, in terms of finding uh, the, the the best comp without getting ahead of yourself. Yeah, there you go again, Max. Always creating problems. I'm a problem creator, not a problem solver. It's it's been true my whole life. Uh, Dave Hastings. So should we go to questions? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, cool. Uh, Dave Hastings says, of the four potential picks the Red Wings would select uh, in in this year's draft, and I think there's probably more than that, but you know, we'll assume that he's talking about Lafreniere, Stutzla, Byfield, and Rossi. Um, who is most likely to start in the NHL next year besides Lafreniere? Also, do you think Stutzla plays center, and how quickly could a potential center pick become the number one or number two center uh, in in the Red Wings organization? Yeah, that's a, that's a really great question. Um, you know, to me, I think Stutzel is the natural, uh, to start in the NHL, but at the same time, he's the only one of, uh, if you're talking about between Lafreniere, Stutzel, Rossi, and, and Byfield, he's the only one that could actually go to the AHL directly. Um, so all that being said, he may be more likely to come to North America, but may actually transition to the AHL first, like, uh, what Moritz Sider did. So I think if I have to pick, who is the most likely to jump straight to the NHL outside of Lafreniere? I think the guy that I would that would pick would be Marco Rossi. I think with all of the scouting reports on him, his game seems to be the most well-rounded. Remember, he is almost a year older than Quentin Byfield as well. So even though Byfield may have to go back uh, to the OHL, he is the one of the youngest players in his draft class, and he may struggle um, if he were to be challenged to go straight to the NHL early on. He may benefit from having another season in the OHL when he's a little bit older against some of these guys, round out some other aspects of his game, and then potentially jump um, later in the season versus uh, at the beginning of the following season. So I think Marco Rossi would be my natural answer here. Man, I, I agree. For, first of all, with uh, with the Rossi answer, uh, just in terms of the age, just in terms of how absolutely dominant he was in that league, and how little it would make sense for any team that drafts him to send him back to what? What do they want him to do? Put up three points a game next year? It, it, it's just pointless. Um, so I, I think the fact that that he's done what he's done, and that the, all the reports out of Ottawa are about how well rounded his game is, he's the guy that makes the most sense to me. Stutzel's also played with men, but he's also the guy who's going to have the ability to go to the AHL, which leads me into the point that. They are going to have to figure out some kind of way to get a few exemptions a year from that CHL-NHL agreement. Um, it just doesn't make sense for Quinton Byfield to go back to the OHL, but 
we saw with Jack Hughes and Capocacco that being straight in the NHL isn't necessarily the best thing either. They're going to have to find a way to do some kind of uh, exemptions here. It may not be this year. It may not be next year. But at some point, it is actively going to be problematic for the development of young players to have to keep going back to the CHL. And I understand the argument uh, for, for the revenue and for the draw and for not, you know, whatever. At the end of the day, we're still talking about the futures of, of these really high-end players here in I don't think it's fair to anybody to have Quinton Byfield back in the OHL next year. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. And, and here's the fun fact is that the current agreement uh, expires June 30th of this year. And to my knowledge, there has not been any uh, discussion of how it's going to be redone or what it's going to look like or if it's just simply going to be renewed. Um, so more to come there because maybe there will be some different uh, method of how this agreement's gonna look moving forward. But to my knowledge as of now, uh, there's nothing conclusively in place for, the, you know, the following season. So hopefully Quentin Byfield is a guy that's able to be exempted from that agreement because it just, you're absolutely right, Max. It makes no sense for him to go back. I don't know what the answer is. Maybe it's top five picks are exempted from it. Maybe it's uh, every organization gets one exemption to use every two years or something like that. To me, that feels like I mean, ultimately, the situation with Byfield is that, like, I I have to assume the team that drafts him is going to bring him to the NHL. So it's not like the CHL was getting him anyway. But they should make it available for him to go to the AHL because that's what's best for him. You know what I mean? So I think there just should be some exemption. It doesn't need to be every team gets one every year, of course. But if every team can get one every two years or every three years or you can make it based on where they're drafted, uh, that, to me, I think is is a sensible solution to all of this. Completely agree. All right. Uh, to finish up the, the second parts of Dave's questions, uh, yes, I think Stutzel plays center. How quickly could they be the number two or number one center in Detroit? Uh, probably about four years. That seems about right. I mean, I don't think there's anybody short of like the really true star McDavid Matthews who becomes a number one or number two center much quicker than that. What Larkin was like three, four years. Yeah, yeah, I think about three years. If you're talking about a guy like Rossi or Stutzel, I think it would it would be about three to four years, and even then. Um, you know, you still have to factor in Dylan Larkin's development. It's not like he's done getting better at this point. So, you know, again, if you ideally have two guys that are of that Larkin skill set or better, now you're in a position to be a, a Stanley Cup contender. Yep. Yep. All right. Back into the pile. Um, Adam Flett says, which prospects are the Red Wings allowed to sign when the season ends and which ones should they sign? Uh, okay. So this is a good one. They're allowed to sign anybody. Um, the problems are going to be what can they uh, what can they realistically do about some of the, the blockages? Like if you're going to sign Keith Petrozelli, you probably have to be willing to have him play in the ECHL next year, which could be fine. Like it, it's arguably still a step up from what he's facing in college, uh, and he's a junior, so. You know, if you don't sign him now, there is the chance he can become a free agent. But you can also kind of make an agreement like the, the you know, the Canucks and Will Lockwood seemed to understand that Lockwood was always going to sign with Vancouver. Um, I'm not saying there was like an under the table deal or anything like that. I'm just saying, like, you know, Lockwood played a senior season and then he signed with Vancouver. So you could still do something like that for a guy like Petrozelli. Um, let's see. Of their unsigned players, they could sign Bergeron, I believe, until 2022, so it's not urgent, and I think it's probably still best to have him playing in Sweden. Um, they can sign, I mean, they can sign any of their prospects, I guess is what I'm saying. The guys who are going to expire this summer, I believe, are Malmstrom, uh, Elfstrom, and, and uh, Bratstrom. And of those guys, Bratstrom would be the only one I would think would really even be uh, in contention to get a contract. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I mean, they can really sign anybody. I don't know that any of those guys are, are hugely necessary to keep in the system at this point. So you may see all three of them just be allowed to walk. The only people I would sign, I think I would sign Petrozelli now. Uh, I think that might be it. I mean, they've already signed McIsaac, so he's going to go pro. Um, I don't think I would pull Master Simone Phillips out of college yet. Kakinsalo, I don't think I would sign at this point. Um, Kevin Maki, obviously he's got, he's got some stuff going on 
over there. Uh, Grava, I don't think you're bringing over yet. Yeah, I think that that's just, that's it for me. Yeah, that's really it. Yeah, yeah, I'm right there with you. I don't think there's anybody else because again, Tua Mister's going into the NCAA now, so you can't bring him either. And so uh, there's no one really that I think the Wings should sign and try and bring over at this point. Yeah, John Evans says, "What would be the biggest obstacle to a March Madness style tournament for the NHL playoffs, other than he says the NHL hating fun and starting playoffs on a Tuesday instead of a fun weekend long event? The biggest obstacle is that that style of tournament." Uh, while very, very fun, uh, is probably not going to lead to a satisfactory champion in hockey in most occasions. Like, if you, especially if you're talking about 24 teams, you could very easily have the Chicago Blackhawks win five straight games and then they're the Stanley Cup champions. And I don't think that is ultimately what the NHL has in mind or, or, or would be good for the NHL, I should say. I, I can't really speak to what they have in mind at this point. Uh, but a single elimination, you know, five game per team tournament. Uh, of the winners is is not going to lead to a satisfactory resolution. At that point, the regular season basically doesn't matter because Chicago shouldn't even be in the playoffs, and then they would be hoisting the Stanley Cup. I mean, with that being said, I'm pretty sure the current system as it is doesn't even do that good of a job of awarding the the best team um, the Stanley Cup anyways. I mean, the NHL is one of the worst at that um, in terms of getting the best team to actually win. So there was a great paper by... Uh, Michael Lopez, where he compared basically all the top leagues and found that, uh, you know, in the NHL, you just rarely, if ever, actually get the best team to truly win the this, this Stanley Cup. So with that being said, I have no issue trying uh, trying out a March Madness style. I think the biggest obstacle, unfortunately, would be travel um, with your matchups. And, and that's always the, the issue here is that you know, how are you going to get these people to move around? Uh, I assume if you're doing a March Madness style, you would have regions and things like that. But how are the regions going to be defined? Uh, I think that's going to be the biggest challenge uh, for that. But, you know, it, it, it's an interesting concept. I think already as it is right now, though, the, the current format does not do a good job of actually handing the Stanley Cup to the best team on a, on a, on a yearly basis. And this would exacerbate that by a factor of five. Yeah, which, I mean, if you're going to steer into the randomness, just do it, right? Well, I don't know. I, I, in part, I would question what the that kind of, like, study is using to measure best team. Is it points? Is it expected goals? Like, at some point, if you lose to a team four out of seven times, you got a pretty good case of being better than them. Yeah, I mean, do we think the Columbus Blue Jackets were better than the Tampa Bay Lightning as convincingly as they were? No, but Tampa can't complain. They got fucking swept, <laughs> you know? Like... <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, I believe uh, Mike Lopez, when he was doing it, uh, he estimated team strength, uh, I think, just based off of win-loss results from the regular season, which, again, while not perfect, it is a substantially larger sample than a uh, than a seven-game, um, you know, series. So, you know, all that being said, I, I do think the NHL is already substantially random at this point. Yeah, and obviously, like, the, the San Jose-Vegas series, I think, last year is a perfect example of it. Like, in that case, like, one call can really swing things when when you get to a Game 7, but I don't know. I think hockey, by definition, is a sport that is is played within kind of 10% lean either way, and, I, you know, I don't think there's any sport where you're, you're, you're going into a playoff saying that the best team has a better than 50% chance of winning anyway. I don't think there's any sport that could that could claim that. No, I mean, I think uh, in his analysis, I'm trying to remember what the odds were like, but uh, effectively the NBA was the most quote-unquote predictable. The NFL was right behind it, and then the NHL was much closer to a coin flip, and then baseball was even more closer to a coin flip at that point. So, you know, all that being said, it is, it is an interesting study to look at. Uh, I do think it suggests that hockey playoff series are closer to a coin flip than some of the other major sports. Yeah, that's fair. Um, okay, what else we got here? <laughs> Ryan Hicks says, if hockey returns, will we be alive to see it? I really hope so. I mean, I, I think it's going to happen in what I would expect to be my lifespan, but who knows? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think there was a report that came out late last night suggesting that teams had asked, or the NHL had asked teams to investigate building availability into August, which to me just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I think at this point, you know, scrap this season, call it, you know, don't award anything, don't let it run into next season, don't let it affect the next season. Because if you're playing hockey into August, I mean, you're running right up against training camp. 
there's just your your players are not gonna be able to turn around and respond like that. So I just I don't think it's a smart idea. I think the safest thing to do at this point would be to just bail on hockey for this season and plan to pick back up at usual schedule. Uh, you know, starting with training camp in September. In that case, I will still be alive, but I will have lost my mind. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right, and then this puts a nice bow on things, so we'll end with this. Eamon O'Flynn, which prospect among the ones we included in our article from this morning uh, are you personally most excited to see in the NHL? Yeah, this is fun. Um, you know, for me, I think the guy that I'm most interested in slash most excited to see is Jonathan Berger, and I think he has all the tools, all the skill, uh, it's just, can he be one of those guys that learns how to play away from the puck and learns how to play more towards the, the middle of the ice when he, when he needs to, to get into those high traffic areas. And if he can do that, the wings are going to have a real steal of a player there. Let's take a quick pause right there. Cause I do want to tell everybody real quick about one of our best deals going on right now at the athletic tournaments have been canceled. Leagues are suspended. There hasn't been a live game on TV in what feels like a year, even though it's barely been more than a week. But there's no better reminder of how important sports are to our lives than to take them away completely. The Athletic, though, is still home to 400 of the best sports writers out there. And in these very strange, very uncertain times, we are all still hard at work doing excellent reporting, telling unique, engaging, informative stories. There was one uh, on a Brazilian soccer legend, Ronaldinho, being in a Paraguayan jail right now. Or how the situation between Todd Gurley and the Rams was beyond repair. How minor league baseball players are getting financial support from their big league counterparts. We've got lots of great stuff on the hockey side. Pierre Lebrun giving constant updates on the GM meetings. We've got uh, prospects stories wall to walls it's during times like this that the athletic can help keep you connected to the teams athletes and sports that you love sign up now to see for yourself the creativity reporting and storytelling that sets the athletic apart and if you go to theathletic.com slash wings for breakfast you can receive 40 percent off an annual subscription so no games aren't being played right now but the stories that draw us all to sports those don't go away so go to theathletic.com slash wings for breakfast for 40% off an annual subscription. We'll hope to see you there. All right. We got to we gotta read this. Oh, God. <laughs> Craig Custance uh, just put up a story on The Athletic, uh, and it involves this quote. According to an NHL source, at least one team has submitted a lottery proposal that would include a tournament in which lottery teams play for the first overall pick. How would you feel about a tournament in which the lottery teams play for the first overall pick? I don't know whether to laugh or cry because, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that would honestly, I mean, again, effectively what that is getting at is a is a very extreme version of gold drafting where, you know, once teams are eliminated, they're able to accumulate points and you want to reward teams that haven't completely committed to the tank. But that, that doesn't that doesn't do any good because you're not going to actually help the teams that need the help. Detroit can't help the fact that they don't have the talent to compete with anybody else. This would just be an incredibly awful situation for the Red Wings. I would specifically request that the Red Wings maybe get to play, you know, seven on five, uh, if that tournament's going to happen, just, just to give them a little bit more of a level playing field. But this would be an absolutely atrocious idea for the Red Wings. Hockey March Madness not so fun now, is it? It really isn't. It really isn't because <laughs> now there's different stakes, and this is something I want this season, and, and that's that's a first overall pick. So I want that. So I don't want the stakes to be on that. All right, uh, but we'll end on this. That I'm going to ask you: Which team is the most likely to have submitted that proposal? Oh, it's got to be Carolina. I got to think because they're like right on the right on the edge. Uh, I think they're in right now. They're, they, they are in, but, okay, so what, what Craig's article is saying is that a team that's on the outside right now has yes, submitted the lottery this. teams. Oh, well, that's I don't fun. know, but I, but it, I mean, I'm assuming it would have to be a team on the bubble, but it doesn't say that, to be clear. Alright, then it's gotta be someone who's like galaxy braining this, and I'm gonna go with Montreal. Montreal's gotta yeah, be Montreal the one that came it. to mind for me. <laughs> Because uh, they could win a tournament like that, so could a team like Nashville, maybe. Uh, or and here's here's the, like the the mega galaxy brain, yeah, or Columbus, the like the the exploding universe brain. Is it San Jose trying desperately for the pick it gave Ottawa to not be in the top five? <laughs> 
That would be incredible because if San Jose was to do that so that they would feel better about the pick they gave to Ottawa, <laughs> that would just be the, the story to end the tournament. <laughs> that would be the story to end all, all stories. You, you come out for the tournament and, and Eric Carlson's been scratched, Brent Burns is scratched, Joe Thornton's retired, Patrick Marlowe's retired, and they're just going to play four on five the entire game. That's, that's exactly what San Jose's doing at this point. I love it. All right. Uh, that's going to do it for us. Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, keep sending in questions. We want to um, do a rewatch of the Red Wings Avalanche fight night game. Uh, send us what you want us to focus on in our rewatch. Uh, we might not be able to watch the whole game, but any topics from that game you want us to dig into, uh, DM them to us, and we will make sure uh, that we look through those before we record next time. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you then.